Go ahead and turn to John chapter 8. That's where we're going to be tonight. We're basically, basically going to cover the entire chapter. And so I've got about uh, 30 minutes or so is what I'm planning on to cover all of John chapter 8. So um, we're going to do it. We got the notes. Sue, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. We're going to be good. So before we get rolling, let me pray for us. And uh, for those of us who are new, um, uh, one of the things that I always do is I will have you pray for me in the middle of that. There'll be a little bit of a prompt. You'll, you'll catch on. Just let's, uh, let's pray now. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the way that you have so composed your body, not just uh, locally here at Emmanuel, but also um, across Missouri, and that we see that you have equipped your bride to do the work that you have tasked us with. Father, I'm thankful for the fact that there are men and women who are on mission and that they are staying in our building, but they're joining us with uh, uh, tonight for worship. And God, that's just a testament to your goodness and your greatness. And so, Father, we just want to be thankful um, in this moment for that and be mindful of it. And as you are sitting there, take a moment and pray for me. I pray that the words that I say would be beneficial, that what I say would be accurate, would be clear, and it would be edifying for us. So if you would, take a moment and pray for me. Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach and teach your word um, tonight. God, I am thankful for the, the challenge that we see here in John chapter 8, and I am thankful for the fact um, that it is clear, but also that we have your Holy Spirit um, amongst us and residing within me to be able to illuminate my heart and my mind, to be able to rightly understand and to be able to rightly teach. And so God, to that end, I pray that the things that I say tonight would be beneficial be accurate, and that I would say nothing that is out of harmony with the gospel, and that I would say precisely what it is that you would have me to say for all of us tonight, whether we are here in person or we're listening after the fact. God, we pray that you would get the glory for everything that we do tonight, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so y'all are catching us in what is the ninth week of a series in the Gospel of John. And so the format that we normally follow is that the first thing we do is a recap of where we were last session, which would have been two weeks ago because we had spring break. And what we covered two weeks ago was actually in John chapter 6. And so I'm just going to throw all this up there. Um, I did a video uh, that's on YouTube that has basically everything that I covered in John chapter 7. If you want to get the details about John 7, go watch the YouTube video. However... What I'm going to say about the last session that relates to John chapter 6 is also applicable for us tonight. So the number one thing is that whenever Jesus has these hard sayings, John chapter 6, that was talking about that we must partake of his body and his blood uh, to have any part of him, those hard sayings are actually invitations for us to trust in him. And that that conversation about Jesus being the one who is the, the manna come down from heaven he is the one who satisfies our spiritual longings, ultimately. We're going to see even more of that tonight. And then the last thing that we kind of landed on was saying that because Jesus is the only rightful king, that he is the only one who is worthy of our allegiance, but also he rightly demands total commitment from us to him, right? And if we understand those elements, then we can kind of get a, a grasp of what's going on in John where we find ourselves right now, yeah? So... I want to talk about where we are heading tonight. And what I want to do is I want to give us a running start on John 8. I want to look at John chapter 6, 7, and 8 together. And then we're going to look at those five sections. And then we're going to have just our final thoughts. I'm going to try to cover this whole chapter in one shot. But one thing that I do want to say is that um, as we are looking at this, it can be kind of standalone. We can look at just John chapter 8, or we can just look at John chapter 7. But whenever you start seeing it in totality, you start seeing how Jesus is building on this conversation. Because this is all one conversation that was begun back in John chapter 6. Yeah? So if you're a note taker, you didn't catch all that, too bad. You'll catch it whenever we are rolling through it, all right? So you'll be fine. We got it online. You'll be good to go. All right, so here's the thing. Right now, in John chapter 8, we find ourselves while the Festival of Booths is ongoing. John chapters 5 through 10 is a series of escalating conflict, and that is going to be very pronounced tonight. Okay? John chapter 5 is on the Sabbath. 
John chapter 6 all the way through about halfway through chapter 10 is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is where we find ourselves. And then a little bit later, we're going to have the Feast of Dedication. It's going to be the last half of John chapter 10. So that's where we find ourselves. And this, this festival is framing everything else that Jesus is uh, doing along the way. But I want to look specifically at John chapters 6, 7, and 8 together because in those three chapters, you see exodus and wilderness imagery all over those three chapters. And here's those three big ones for sure. In John chapter 6, we see Jesus saying he is the bread of life. And this is him talking about how he is the manna that has come down from heaven. He is the heavenly sky bread, right? And when he tells them that, their answer is, I want to get some of that sky bread. And so Jesus gives them, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then they're like, not so much, right? So John chapter 6, the bread of life, is the manna. John chapter 7, when Jesus talks about the living water, that's where we see this reference to the water that came from the rock, right, and the provision in the wilderness. And tonight, in John chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus talk about him being the light of the world, and that is a reference not only to what's going on with the Feast of Tabernacles that we're going to see here in just a moment, but also in Exodus with the pillar of fire at night. And what he is claiming is, I am the embodiment of what that fire and what that light was in the middle of the night. That's me. I am the light of the world. We've seen that phrase, I am, numerous times, and it's going to come to a head really tonight. And here's the last thing. If you get nothing else from this section, Jesus is now facing down a mob with truth. I think a lot of times whenever we read Jesus having a, a conversation with either the Pharisees or a crowd, we kind of think about that being like a really um, civil discussion about heartfelt theological truths, and these are just people that have differing opinions. That is not what is happening. It is certainly not what is happening. We've already seen earlier in the Gospel of John that the Pharisees have already decided, hey, we're going to try to kill this dude. And in John chapter 6, verse 35, they actually send the temple guards to go arrest him so they can kill him. And then the temple guards come back in verse 50 or so, 59, I can't remember, in John chapter 6, and they didn't arrest him. And the Pharisees are like, what are y'all doing? Where's Jesus? Whenever we get to this conversation, at the very end of this, spoiler, if you go look at the very last verse of John chapter 8, they're picking up stones to kill Jesus. And he never backs down any, at all, whatsoever. The dainty, effeminate, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that we like to think of that just loves people and never confronts anyone and is just never stepping on toes is not biblical. And you're going to see that here in John chapter 8. So let us talk about John chapter 8 properly. Since we have such a big chunk to cover, I'm not going to read every verse. I'm just going to kind of skip around and kind of give us the narrative as we work through it. So uh, the one place I do want to read is picking up in verse 12. The very first word in my translation, the ESV, is again. Does anyone have another translation? Later. Later. Then. then. This is connecting us all the way back to John chapter 6 with the Festival of Tabernacles. One of the main things that we see at the end of John chapter 6, you might want to pull my level down a little bit. The main thing we see in John chapter 6 is that at one point there's going to be this bowl of water that's going to be poured out on the altar. And then at that moment, Jesus stands up and he cries out, I am this living water. If you want that, come to me, right? He's using the symbology of the festival to demonstrate or highlight his own message. Yeah? Same thing is going on here. I want to read for us in... Uh, this is from the Mishnah. So this is actually Jewish literature about the festival, and this is what Jews would have done. It says this. Toward the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, people went down into the court of the women. Golden lamps were there, and four golden bowls each were on each of them, and four ladders were on each, four young men who were of the priestly group of youth, and they had jugs of oil in their hands. So, like, we're about to get ready to light these jokers up, right? We don't do a whole lot of lamp stands around here, but how many of y'all have been to a bonfire? That's what we're talking about, right? They're having a bonfire is essentially what's going on. So culturally, this is like the tabernacles is one of the more uh, fun holidays in the Jewish calendar. And it's because they have like this bonfire type thing that's going on. It goes on to say, wicks were made from them and discarded from the priests, uh, made from their clothes. 
And there was no court in Jerusalem that was not bright from the light of the place of the drawing of water. So where they got the water, they would start this procession of lamps and they would light it all the way to the temple and the whole place would just be lit up. Men of piety and known for their good work danced before them with torches in their hands and they sang before them songs and praises. And the Levites and the priests and all the others had harps and cymbals and trumpets and other musical instruments without number. So what's going on at this point in the, in the festival? The Jews would cut loose. Like this is a festival. They are having fun. They are celebrating and remembering how God had provided for them in the wilderness. He had protected them on the way out of Egypt, and while they were wandering, there was this pillar of, of fire, and they were remembering that with the light. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. So at the time when everyone's cutting loose and everyone's having fun, what Jesus says is, hey, that light that you're recalling from Exodus, that's me. I'm it. I am the embodiment of that provision. You're looking at it. It's me. And as everyone's fired up and having a good, good time, and they are spiritually sensitive to what's going on because they're lighting torches for a reason, he says, that remembrance that you're trying to call to mind, I'm it. Let's talk about that right? So he goes on to say, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But then the Pharisees in verse 13, the first thing they do is they challenge his self-testimony. Their response is not, you know what? Let's talk more about this light of life. Let's talk about how you're the fulfillment and the light of the world. How can you say that you are the light of the world? Dog, you don't have any other witnesses, you're, you're saying this, but there's literally no one else with you saying, yeah, he's right. And so what happens for the next several verses is that there is this back and forth from Jesus and the Jews who are basically him saying, you're, you're asking for witnesses about my, my case that I am the light of the world. The Father testifies. And so what he says there is that the Jesus, or Jesus says that the Father is the one who bears witness to him being that very light. Now, they don't get it, and they get upset, and they get real mad, right? You can see there in verse 31, yet many of, oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong verse. Um, you can look there in verse 20. He was speaking there in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So even though the Pharisees have already tried to arrest him once, they have already made plans to kill him, they're not going to do it now because what he's saying seems to be taking root in some folks' life around him, and they're fearing the crowd. And what John says is his hour hadn't come yet. So the stage has been set. We've already seen this really climactic pouring of the water, and Jesus says, I am the place where you're going to have living water. It's going to come from me. And then when they're lighting the torches, he says, I am that light. I'm the light of the world. I am everything that light represents. Y'all tracking with that? All right, let's pause for a moment. Questions? You tracking? Sue's tracking. What about everybody else? That's all the way back in John chapter 6. Whenever you are looking, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 7. After this, when Jesus went to Galilee, this is verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7. Um, his brothers were asking him to go to the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, same word, same festival. And then everything else is the marker of, and again, again, or then, or next. Those are the words that connect us that that's all that's what's going on there. Yeah. And if you look at John chapters 5 through 10, a series of escalating conflicts, they are all surrounding festivals, a Sabbath, Tabernacles, and eventually the Feast of Dedication. Like That's how John has given us a guidepost to track. Cool? All right. So let's drive on. Let's look at verses 21 through 30. And this is where Jesus tells them they are going to die in their sin. He is not this effeminate man who is not looking to ruffle any feathers. He speaks truth to power. Right? So let's pick it up there in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews says, man, will he kill himself? Since he's saying, where I'm going, you can't come. So what Jesus actually says to him is like, guys, you are going to die in your sin. 
Incidentally, the word there for sin is in the singular. He's talking about a sin. There's a singular sin that you are going to die um, under the weight of. And what I think is actually going on there is that that singular sin is that they have not accepted that he is God's son. That is the issue, right? The whole time that Jesus has been saying from John chapter 6, 7, and now 8, these ami, ego ami statements, I am, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, you're going to see at the end of John 8, he is declaring who he is. I am from the Father. And if you reject him, what hope do you have? So when he says, you're going to die in your sin if you don't get this, that's not only just a word of real judgment in that sense, but also like that's an invitation, right? And we're going to see that it's an invitation because you can skip down to verse 30 and you'll see in John chapter 8 verse 30 is that there were many who believed in him, right? His words start to take root. And so this is actually an invitation, but here's the problem. Of course, they misunderstand. They hear him talking about, okay, we're going to die in our sin and where I'm going, you can't go. Like, what is this dude talking about? Jesus, what, are you, what do you mean? Are you going to, like, commit suicide? Which I think this is, like, a little bit of irony because Jesus is not going to commit suicide. However, he is going to lay his life down, right? And I think that there is, there's a hint there of, like, what kind of death he's going to have, but it's not going to be the way they think, right? So let's look there in verse 22 and 23. Will he kill himself? Where you're going, we can't come. What do you mean? And he said to them, you're from below and I'm from above. Guys, you're not going to get this because I'm talking over your head. I am from above, I'm from the Father, and you're from below. And this, if, if you're a keen reader of John 8 and you know what's going on, you know where we're heading. They're going to start talking about who their father is. Oh, you're from your father. Okay, sure. But we have Abraham. And then Jesus is like, no, your father is actually the devil, right? So he's saying, of course, you're not going to understand these spiritual things, Right? I am from, uh, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sin for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, right? He just says it plainly. And by the way, like that whole idea of rejecting God's son as being like the paramount sin, you can go find in John chapter one, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If that's who Jesus is, you reject that. What hope do you have? You can go look in John 8, 24, which is what we just read. Like, I've been telling you this whole time. You can't reject me and still have hope. Go look at John chapter 9, verse 41, which I think we'll hit next week. John 15, 22 through 24, and John 16, 9 are all places where Jesus upholds the one decision that matters above any other. And he says, if you have not come to this recognition that I am from God and I am here to save you, like what, what hope do you have? And the answer is none hope, right? That's the phrase I've used before with John 3. You have no hope. There is no hope. So Jesus says, guys, y'all don't understand because you can't. And he says the only escape is to trust in the one singular I am. And we're going to see that phrase. He's kind of teasing us with it a little bit here, but it's going to get uncorked for sure at the very end of the, of the chapter. And here's the deal. Jesus' message of you must receive him has been consistent from the very beginning. Let's look there in verse 25. They said to him, okay, if, if what you're saying is true, that we've got to trust in you, then who are you, Jesus? Verse 25 goes on to say, Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. My message has stayed the same the whole time. I'm from the Father. I know the Father. You don't. I have authority. The Father speaks for me. My works speak. The scriptures speak. Your boy Johnny B, John the Baptist, was saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of us are in one accord saying, I'm the guy. And yet they ask, Well, who are you? And Jesus is like, I'm the same one I've been telling you from the beginning. Does that make any kind of buzzers go off in your head? From the beginning, right? Where should your mind go when you hear the words from the beginning? Genesis, where else? If you're in this gospel, John chapter 1 with the prologue, which is playing off of Genesis 1, right? And Jesus is saying, 
I've been the same ever since I've been here, which is always, yeah? So what he goes on to say there is that this message of him being who he has said all along really is going to be culminating in that the sun must be lifted up. Let's look there in verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father, and so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Once again, that same phrase, I'm the one. Then you'll know I'm he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. This is where we see the, the worm begin to turn a little bit, where it's no longer just the sun is being lifted up. He starts pointing the finger of like, you're going to lift me up, religious leaders. You're going to demand that this other cat named Barabbas be released and that I go on the cross that was designated for that cat, and I'm going to be lifted up, and you have a responsibility with that. And so all this happens, but then verse 30 takes place and says, and many believed in Jesus due to his words, right? My translation says, and as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Yeah? Questions about 21 through 30. We're blazing through it. We're going to make it, guys. We're going to make it. Questions, comments, further elaborations. Yeah, <clears throat> so if you didn't hear what Paul's comments are, this is a weird thing to be do, uh, for Jesus to be doing because where are his disciples? They're not mentioned. The last time we saw back in John chapter um, 7 was whenever Jesus' brothers were saying, hey, you should go up to Jerusalem and get you some more disciples. We heard about everybody leaving you at the end of John chapter 6. Go get you some more. Go whip everybody up. Everyone's going to be in Jerusalem anyway. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then secretly he goes. But we have no indication that the disciples are there with him. And so, in my mind, even if the disciples are there with him, this is Jesus against a mob. And he is speaking truth directly to them and does not back down. Yeah? That's a big deal. That's a good, good catch, Paul. All right, let's look at verses 31 through 38. What's going to happen in verses 31 through 38 is there's going to be this conversation about the Jews and their relationship to Abraham. And then we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about, yeah, you're, you're not of your father Abraham. You're of your father the devil in the next section. But the last section, which is going to be um, starting in verse 48, that's when Jesus is going to talk about his relation to Abraham. So hold these two sections. Know that we're going somewhere. Right now, the Jews and their relationship to Abraham, Jesus and his relationship to Abraham is going to be at the very end. So let's pick it up there in verse uh, 31. Let me get there. Verse 31 says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed. Verse 30, many believed because of his words. So Jesus, it almost seems like he stops talking to the crowd and he gets the group that just believed in him and he starts teaching them about discipleship, right? He immediately launches into discipleship. There's no hesitation. There is no waiting. There are four college students that I am meeting with on a weekly basis and one of, two of them have been Christians for six weeks and that's it. And we're in the middle of discipleship right now. There is no hesitation. So Jesus immediately launches into that, and he goes on to say, he says to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And one of those grand phrases that we like to say, what does he say about that truth? And that truth will set you free, guys. And I don't know if this is the group of disciples or the larger mob. I think it's partly some of both. I think it is some of those new converts new disciples and the rest of the crowd because they start piping up in verse 33 and they answered him. I think that they is partly the group of the new disciples and they say, uh, Jesus, what are you talking about? We're the offspring of Abraham. Uh, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Anything wrong with that statement? Yeah. One, like, their whole history is about being enslaved and, Jesus, or, and God saving them out of Egypt. Never mind that. What other kind of enslavement are they presently experiencing? Say again. The Romans. 
Okay, you're free. Go do what you want to right now. In fact, go do it by that centurion real quick. Just, just go ahead and do that. And of course, the answer is going to be, well, no. Oh, for someone who's not enslaved, you sure are scared of the authority that's not over you. Yeah? But there's also another kind of slavery that they are experiencing presently, isn't it? You have a comment? There's sin. Because that's what Jesus is really talking about. Because we just highlighted at least two major ways that they have literally been slaves. And Jesus never even mentions it. That tells me <coughs> that as important as that thought is, and I think it is right for us to recognize that, that's not Jesus' main point, right? The Jews are actually misunderstanding not slavery, but freedom, right? He's saying, if you know the truth and you are convinced of it and you abide in my word and it's in you and you're experiencing that truth, that's where freedom is. And their first thought is, we talk about freedom, man, we've never been slaves. Wrong, twice. But what he's talking about is like, guys, you're so in the thick of it, you don't even know how enslaved you are. You don't even see how bad the situation is, right? Let's look there in verse uh, 33. They answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we're going to become free? You see that they even connect to the matter of freedom. It's because they misunderstand it. And so what does Jesus do? He just uncorks it. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly. Don't miss what I'm about to tell you, fellas. Whenever he uncorks that truly, truly, there's something really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Full stop. You're a slave to sin. You ever sinned? Yeah, you're a slave to sin. Have you, have you combated that yourself? Did you overcome it? No? Well, then you're still a slave. Have you abided in my word where there's real freedom? No? Well, then you're still a slave. Right? He goes on to say that that sin that they have is, is more insidious than they think. Keep going there in verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son, me sent from the Father, me, if I set you free in real freedom, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And what Jesus is offering in that moment is actual sonship, not slavery. There is no security for a slave. What does tomorrow hold? Who knows? Are you going to be alive next week? Couldn't tell you. Are you going to be traded away? Are you going to be maimed or whatever, right? There's no security. And what Jesus is relegating that to is in this conversation about sonship. He says, but if you are a son and you belong to this house, you are secure. And as soon as he starts talking about sonship and being in part of the family, and they're already talking about Abraham, Jesus is going, okay, cool, let's talk about that. You, you want to talk about being sons of Abraham, let's talk about what that actually means, right? So he's offering sonship, not slavery. But here's the problem. Let's look there in verse 37. Actually, verse 36. Son sets you free. You'll be free indeed. 37. I know you are the offspring of Abraham. But what are y'all doing? You're trying to kill me. Guys, does that sound like the actions of Abraham's true descendants, this noble people who understand God's plan? Because what he says is your hostility is demonstrating you're still slaves. And not only is it demonstrating this hostility that you have is, is part of this sin that you are living in and you don't even recognize, but it's actually demonstrating something else that, like, you don't even belong to Abraham. Keep reading on. If you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. My father. Not the father. My father. My father. Definitely not yours. Of my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. And this is where I think the crowd is really turning into a mob. Because he really just stepped on their toes. Because what's the one thing the Jews have going for them that no one's going to take away? Like, we are a peculiar people. We are unique. We're not many. We're not great. But God loved us. And why? Because there was this cat named Abraham. Started with him. Genesis 12. Genesis 15. And he had a son. And he had a son, and he had a whole bunch of sons. And here we are today, right? 
And what he says is, you actually don't even know your real lineage here. Questions about verses 31 through 38. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. All right, let's look at verses 39 through 47. And this is where Jesus is going to call them, hey, you're the son of the devil, (laughs) right? You can see where the crowd's getting whipped up. Let's look at verse 39. And they answered him, Abraham's our father. And then Jesus said, hey, if you're Abraham's children, you wouldn't be doing this, right? (laughs) This isn't what Abraham's children do, you know? They just don't, and yet you're doing it. And so the Jews' actions are not in keeping with Abraham's children. And he tells that to their face, right? Doesn't back away from it at all. So then what happens is in verse 40, I'm sorry, verse 41. Um, yeah, let's pick it up in verse 41. You were doing the works that your father did. And so what do they say to him? Hey, man, at least we know who our dad is. Got him. Hey, Jesus, who's your dad? Maybe there had been uh, questions about the, the purity of Mary that had been floating around. But the question that they're asking is, hey, Jesus, who is your dad then? Because you keep saying my father, but where is he? We don't know who that guy is. And they can say, we got Abraham. I got the documents to prove it, right? I know what tribe I'm from, but who's your dad? And when Jesus hears that, instead of actually addressing this, um, <laughs> them questioning his paternity, he actually goes a little bit of a different direction, and he says, oh, well, we're going to talk about my father? Absolutely, let's talk about him. Verse 42, and Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And his answer is, you want to know who my dad is? It's, our, it's the father, my father in heaven. That's who sent me. He clearly tells them this. Like, this isn't veiled in any way. You want to talk about my dad? Okay, cool. He's the father, our father, ultimately. That's who my dad is. And I'm sure that that just made them angry. But that ain't nothing yet. Let's pick it up there in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear my word. I'm from above, you're from below. You don't even know your real father because what he says in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Y'all want to talk about Abraham? Nope. He is not your actual father. He goes on to talk about that the devil is the father of lies and murder. He's been that way from the very beginning. And I think he's referencing all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel and the first murder and the thing that animated this sinful activity between these two brothers that one literally takes a rock and, like, kills him. He's saying that same spirit is animating you right now, not Abraham. Not Abraham. And so... Jesus is speaking the truth, but they can't hear it because they're not from God. And how do you think they responded to that? Actually, you know what, Jesus, you're making a good point. Let's talk about that a little more. Somebody get some notes. Let me get a whiteboard over here. Let's, Let's draw out his argument. You think that's how this is going down? No. This is the most fun festival that everyone looks forward to in the fall when it's not so stinking hot and they get the bonfire going, and now you're raining on everybody's parade and you just said, I'm from the devil. They accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan and having a demon, and Jesus is like, nah, no. Yeah, if anyone's got a demon connection, it's you, not me. Yeah? Questions about 39 through 47. Because it's getting worse. It's about to get a little bit worse, too. So let's look at 48 through 59. We're almost done. So what do the Jews do? Verse 48, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan or you got a demon? So first they questioned who Jesus' dad was, and now they're like, oh, well, now we know you're crazy. You got a demon. Man, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a Samaritan. <laughs> Why do we even listen to this guy? That's that kind of anger that people have whenever they try to insult somebody, and that would be the perfect time to like end the conversation, but then they stick around because they're so mad they want something to escalate. That's what's going on here. Right? That, this is their time to leave. If they think he's just out of his mind, stop listening. 
but they're angry and they want some retribution. And so what Jesus does is verse 49, I don't have a demon, but honor my father and you dishonor me. I don't seek my own glory. Verse 51, truly, truly, don't miss it. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And what he just said is, if you're really my disciple, you guys who said you believe in my word, you got to follow me and you'll never taste death. Yeah. Discipleship leads to eternal life. Abiding with Jesus leads to eternal life. But what is their response? They get more angry. <laughs> they just get more angry. Uh, the Jews said to him, now we know you got a demon. Abraham died. The prophets died. All of our heroes of the faith, every one of them died. And here you are saying that if we just hang out with you, we'll never die. Come on, man. Like, this is crazy. You hear how he's talking about, like, our lineage? The crowd's getting whipped up. Bad. So what does Jesus say about this? Let's pick it up there in verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he's our God. Okay, cool. If you say that he's your God, then you should recognize I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm actually seeking his because you, like Nicodemus, you should have known God was going to provide a way, and now you're squandering it. You're snuffing it out because I'm that way. I'm the light of the world, and y'all got fired up about that. I am the provision that God has sent. Verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him, and if I were to tell you I don't know him, I'd be a liar, because I do know him. But you don't. And so he goes on to say there, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so what Jesus says, this next point, is that Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day, that provision of salvation, that provision of how God was going to miraculously provide and miraculously save. Genesis 12 and 15, the promise that all the nations are going to be blessed through this new family that's going to go worldwide. I'm the way that this is being initiated right now. He saw this is how it was working out, and he was glad. And you don't look anything like your father, Abraham. Are you seeing that? And then they get even more mad. Because what they then say is, guy, you're not even 50 years old. Abraham was like 2,000 years ago. What, what are you, like a time traveler? Like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Samaritan, demon, we know you're out of your mind. And then Jesus unfurls this statement. 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, don't miss it. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what Jesus is claiming there is that he is preexistent. It's not about 2,000 years ago. Your scale is minuscule and it's off because I have always existed. The thing that Abraham was looking forward to is this Jewish Messiah who is going to be the provision for salvation. I'm him. And when Abraham saw it, he rejoiced. And you're not rejoicing. That tells me you're not from Abraham. And what he does is he uncorks this ego of me, I am, which is in many ways the functional equivalent of the Hebrew of Yahweh. I am. When you go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, and Moses is hiding in the rock, and like God's like afterglow walks behind him. And Moses walks down the mountain, and he's freaking out, and he's glowing himself, right? And he declares the name of the Lord, ego of me. I'm him, fellas. And they know precisely what he means because what does your Bible say is the very next thing they choose to do. They pick up rocks because we're going to build an altar. There's going to be a nice little place for the stones of remembrance. And this is where we're going to mark it out and say, this was the place that we met God. Is that why they got the rocks? Because they're going to kill him. Anyone who tells you that Jesus never claims divinity, then what is that? They understood precisely what Jesus was saying. He is saying, I am that Messiah. I am that promised provision. I am, guys, and they are ready to kill him. But then this other miracle is Jesus just like 
slips away. I don't know how he does it. He just, he hid himself and he walks out. I don't know. I don't get it. Point is, they try to kill him. And that's where we end. Questions about 48 through 49 before we hear our final thoughts. All right, so let's talk about four points. Number one, we are incapable of overcoming darkness under your own power, your own abilities. You cannot overcome it. What do you need? The light of the world. You need someone else to overcome it for you because you can't, because I can't. And when Jesus is making these declarative statements that I am the light of the world, he's inviting them to come and see that. Come, see. That's the same thing that Nathaniel was told. Could this be the Messiah? Hey, dog, come see. Go look in John chapter 1. Come and find out for yourself, man. What about the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Come and see this man who told me everything in my life. Come and see for yourself. I'm the light of the world. Come see. How many of y'all are from like South Louisiana? So the Garners aren't really here. There we go. The Garners, here we have it. Come see, right? What's come see mean? You got to come here. If you didn't know that, as these Cajuns, French influence, I don't really know what the deal is. Come see. Normally they kind of do a little underhanded thing where you come. Come to me. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the light of the world. Come see. Yeah? And here's the next thing. In that invitation, to refuse life is the same thing as choosing death. It is. As much as we might want to get wrapped around the axle as to whether or not we choose God or God chooses us, I know this much. Whenever Jesus makes the invitation and people respond, I feel like both things are happening. I feel like people are responding and they are coming. They are recognizing that only God is able to overcome the darkness. And when he says, you have a choice, and it seems like a big part of this crowd is rejecting him, that rejection to choose life is necessarily a choice for death. Yes? Here's the next thing. Abiding in Jesus following him, having his word abide in you and you abiding in him, that is a demonstration of genuine faith. And when we look back at these cats back in verse 30 that seemed to believe in him, I don't know how many of them were part of this crowd who were picking up rocks, but grammatically, whenever they respond to Jesus, it seems like they're part of the crowd with the rocks too. That doesn't seem to be genuine discipleship to me or genuine faith. Discipleship is a clear demonstration of our faith in Jesus. And let me just ask real clearly, who is discipling you? Ms. Joyce, I know you are a mature believer. You have probably forgotten more about certain parts of the Bible than I'll ever know. You need to have someone discipling you. R.O., I've been a deacon for 60 years. You need someone discipling you. Every one of us needs discipleship. It is a lifelong process. Discipleship is not just someone teaching you, but it's also you exercising your gifts in teaching and leading others. And abiding in Jesus is a genuine, a real demonstration of genuine, real faith. So let's do some of that. Yeah? And then lastly, when Jesus speaks, when he actually says something, his word is authoritative and it is binding. Guys, I'm the light of the world. You can't overcome it yourself. You must come to me. I am giving you this opportunity. You are of your father, the devil, but I am saying I can make you a son. What do you want to do about that? It forces a response. When we read in Scripture something that doesn't accord with how we think life works, guess what? You don't get to trump Scripture. You don't. When God speaks, when Jesus speaks, and he speaks with authority, because he does, it's binding. It demands a response of us. Just like where we ended in John chapter 6, that Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our complete total allegiance, then that demands our complete total allegiance. Now, does that mean that you can never fail or you're kicked out of the club? No. Because God's grace is so more abundant than your ability to sin. But abiding and remaining and having his word in you 
is part of that process of learning how to overcome that sin in your life. Yeah? Questions, comments, concerns? John chapter 8. I got two more minutes. We're going to take every bit of it. Any other comments that y'all want to throw out there that maybe I didn't uh, address because, you know, I was covering basically 50 verses in 35, 40 minutes? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, did Jesus ever take a time to like lay out a systematic approach to, this is what the Old Testament says about this coming Messiah, and here's how I fit the bill, right? We don't see that that's the way that Jesus does it before the, uh, before the resurrection. We have a clear indication that he does that in Luke chapter 22, 24, 22. The road to Emmaus. And there are these two disciples, and then Jesus walks up beside them, and he starts explaining, hey, let's, let's, let's talk about Genesis. And he goes from the beginning through all the prophets, and he lays out the case for the Messiah. So he does do it there, although we don't actually get to see it. Luke doesn't actually tell us what his argument was. Here's what I would say. John, in John chapter 3, is recording this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and what Jesus' argument is to Nicodemus is, you're a teacher of all Israel. How do you not know? His assumption was that it should be evident that when, under Nicodemus' own argument, you must be something special because no one can do what you do unless God is with them. That's how the conversation starts. And then Jesus is like, all right, so we're on the right foot. So you understand what it means to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. And Jesus says, you've got to be born again, man. Like that's, How do you not understand this? So it does seem as though the way John records this gospel narrative is that there is a certain level of um, comprehension that they should have had. However, the way the book is formatted in John chapter 7, it is always formatted around some action that Jesus takes, whether it is a healing, it's some kind of miracle, or some kind of conversation or teaching where it brings people to a point where they must make a decision. They must, it forces them to decide, are you going to go with Jesus or not? And I think the way that John is describing this narrative is that the signs, the miracles that he does are meant to demonstrate that that's who he is. And that's just kind of the way that structurally the book works. But you are correct to say, yeah, it would have been really helpful if Jesus himself laid out a clear argument step by step. And he just doesn't do that. At least it's not recorded for us in that way. So we have to do some of the work to see that. In the, in the way the gospel accounts are recorded. Other questions or comments? Rich, yes, sir. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the comment there is that there were many who heard, but there were not that same number of people who believed. And what's the account, or what's to account for that? Like, I don't know. But what we see from the parables is that Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And if you don't understand and you want answers about the kingdom, then come to the king, and I'll answer them for you. Because every time that someone comes up to Jesus after a parable and they ask him, hey, what does that mean? He tells them. And that's a demonstration of them coming because they want to know. John, do you have a question? One of the reasons why they missed it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So John's comment there is that whenever Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah, for those who picked up on that, there was this confusion because they anticipated that that new king, that new figure who is the Messiah, is going to come and overthrow the Romans. It's a political Messiah, not just one that's going to free them from sin, is what John's talking about here. 
in John chapter 8, they miss it, which is why it's so fascinating in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, and Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman who has no such trappings. The Samaritans didn't think of the Messiah as one who's going to be this political ruler. They thought of the Messiah much more about as someone who was going to teach them the correct way to live. And what does Jesus do whenever she talks about this Messiah? He goes, I'm him, baby. Yeah. You're, I'm he. The one you're talking to is that guy. What do you want to know? And she runs off. And she's starting to tell everybody, this guy is the Christ. He's told me everything about my life. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Other comments, questions, gripes, complaints, concerns? Sue, yes, ma'am. If we go back to, I think it was week 12 of last semester when we were doing our hermeneutics and we were talking about parables, we talked about the parable of the soils. And what we said there is that ultimately, yeah, we're talking about a description of four kinds of soils, but really it's not four, there's two. There's one that receives and produces fruit, and then there's the rest that doesn't, right? There's different reasons, but there's clearly this call of what real discipleship looks like. This abiding in Jesus is, is the marker, right? And that's borne out over a lifetime. Uh, Gary, did you have a statement? Have at it. They just couldn't get away from the law. Couldn't get away from the law. Which, yeah. Yeah, I, I, the comment there is that they couldn't get away from the law, and it seemed like they had this understanding that the law was going to be kind of into perpetuity. Now, I, I think, I don't fully understand how that, squares with this anticipation that there was going to be a Messiah. Like, I don't know how that works out, but what we do know is whatever their conception of, of how the law works when the Messiah shows up was goofy. We know that much because they're trying to kill, kill him when he shows up, right? So there's all sorts of other stuff going on here. All right, final, 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 final thought. Steven, you got anything you want to throw out there? Hey, man, I'm going to give you the opportunity. This is the last word, man. All right, let me pray for us, and then we will be out of here. And since we're late, y'all can all blame Angela Heck. It's her fault that we went long, okay? So direct all your vitriol towards her up here. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we have looked at John 8 and uh, seen briefly what, uh, everything that Jesus says there, God, I pray that we would recognize that your son has authority over our lives, and he is the only one who is worthy of our complete obedience and complete allegiance. God, I pray that we would recognize that true discipleship is a lifelong process and that we have a part to play in it. And God, I pray that as we recognize that role of um, being disciples ourselves and making other disciples, we would share the message that they cannot overcome darkness on their own, but we have the light of the world made available to us and we must respond and choose life. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us do that. I pray that you will have been honored tonight, and I pray that we will have been edified. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. If you need notes, I'll be up here. If not, it'll all be online after the fact.